Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Philosophy for Our Times. From Obama's presidency to Grenfell Towers, this week's podcast examines whether we are living in a post-racial society. Is race central to who we are, or can we move beyond it? Can we even begin to talk about race without first addressing racism? To debate these questions of identity and injustice, host Rana Mitter is joined by pioneer of intersectional theory, Kimberly Crenshaw, vice chair of the Conservative Party for candidates, Kemi Badenoch, Social mobility expert Richard Reeves and Shadow Home Secretary Diane Abbott. This debate was recorded live at Howler Light Gets In, the world's largest philosophy and music festival. For a limited time only, you can now get 20% off your ticket for next year's festival from the 24th to the 27th of May in Hay on Wye. Go to howlerlightgetsin.org and enter discount code PODCAST20, all lowercase letters to get your ticket now. That's Podcast 20 to get 20% off next year's festival. We have a fantastic panel here today to debate the subject who we are beyond black and white and asking questions about whether race, which has been so much in the news, whether we're here in Britain, in the United States, or indeed a whole variety of places around the globe, is going to continue to be a driving discourse, a driving set of ideas in our politics of who we are, or whether eventually, sooner rather than later, we may move beyond them or not. The key question we have really is whether or not it is practical, useful, moral perhaps, to think about moving beyond race, or whether we still need to have that front and centre in terms of concentrating on questions of identity. I wonder if I might start with you, Diane. Like... I think everyone on the panel, I was so thrilled and swept away when Barack Obama got elected. It seemed to me to be a seminal moment. And when he came on the platform in Chicago to announce that he had won, I burst into tears and I called a well-known television commentator of colour. And I said, I'm crying. And he said, I'm crying too. So it was an extraordinary moment. But I was a bit wary of the debate which arose then and since about us all being post-racial, as if race and colour and class, if you like, no longer mattered. And what we saw about the election of Barack Obama, wonderful as it was and wonderful as it was for me, what we saw is the most savage, imaginable backlash in the election of Donald Trump. And probably that reveals to us in politics, it's kind of circular and you seem to move forward and then 
at the very least, you stall. You talked about race as if it's a choice to talk about race, as if we can choose to or we can choose not to. It was not an issue of choice for those black and brown people who were trapped in some of the worst housing in London, in Grenfell Tower, and consequently burnt to death. They didn't choose to be part of marginalised communities, which were largely marginalised communities because they were of colour. What I will say is how difficult it is to be a black person and talk about race. When I was a young woman, you couldn't talk about it because the left didn't like you talking about race because they felt it was a distraction from the essential issue of class. And you can still find remnants of that attitude now. Then you get liberals who say, I don't want to talk about race because I don't see colour. And then finally, you get people on the right who don't want to talk about race because to talk about race means touching on all kinds of issues about unfairness and inequality, which being on the right, they'd rather not talk about. But it's somehow, because society doesn't see colour, that you see statistic after statistic which maps systematic discrimination against people of colour. When you look at what's happening in employment, when you look at what's happening in schools, if you even look at what's happening in our mental institutions, someone, somewhere, is seeing colour. <laughs> Can I turn next to Professor Kim Crenshaw? I think we would all agree that race is not something we can ignore now. Part of the question that's being asked is, is it ever going to be possible to do that? And should we be aiming towards that? Or is seeing colour something that should be central and celebrated and a positive part of the way we think about identity, not being sidelined or ignored? For the here and now, in a society that is, has inherited this history, the talk about can we get to a point where we don't have to talk about race, before we have a talk about how do we talk about racism, seems to me to be premature. So you know, I'll go back to um, what Diane just said, if I may. The, the moment of post-racialism is an embodiment of that hope that that time is here. And usually that hope gets attached to some big event, some breakthrough. So um, the, in 2008, it was the election of Barack Obama. Before that, it was, in the United States, it was the Civil Rights Act. Before that, it was when Jackie Robinson became the first black person to play baseball. I mean, at each of these moments, people heralded that time as the coming of the moment where we can get beyond race. And then immediately after that, there's usually a, a backlash to suggest the getting beyond race can't happen until we get beyond racism. Racism isn't over just because someone gets elected to the presidency of the United, uh, the United States or someone gets to play baseball. These are not the end moments of racism. And just to put a point on it, if we think about structurally what happened when Barack Obama got elected, what happened structurally um, is the United States Senate lost its only African-American member. That's what happened. 
symbolically, it was a, an amazing thing. But if you actually look to see whether these symbolic breakthroughs actually create structural institutional change, which is where the source of racism is, in fact, these moments actually don't do much. And let me put another point on it. It often makes it harder to talk about the things that need to be talked about because people point to the fact that there's a black person in the White House and they think that that means that everything else is off the table. You know, let, let me put it this way. There are two ways you could think about post-racialism. You could think about post-racialism as a society in which all vestiges of past white supremacy have been eliminated. Um, it is as likely that the CEO of the, of the company and the person who's the janitor of the company, either all people of color or the same race, right? The reality is that you can still predict largely accurately who is going to occupy the CEO office and who's going to clean it. Now, that's not a post-racial society. The other definition of post-racial is, is what we got. We don't talk about racism anymore which doesn't mean that we don't talk about race anymore. So what we inherited was a political discourse in which we could talk about inequality as long as it was located in the people who are unequal. So we continued in the period of, of Barack Obama to have conservative liberal debate about whether um, African Americans are unequal because they listen to too much hip hop. They um, don't delay gratification. Their family structures are not nuclear. I mean, all the cultural individual arguments for inequality still were very much part of the discourse, even in this post-racial moment. What wasn't was to talk about racism. So when you ask me, is there a place uh, where we can imagine there's no longer race, I would say that place is where there's no longer racism. Thank you, Kim. Uh <laughs> I think it's time to bring a further aspect to the, uh, the debate. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Femi Badenoch, and I'm a newly elected Conservative uh, Member of Parliament. So I'm very different from Diane and Kim, not because I'm a Conservative or on the right, but because I grew up in a place where I wasn't a minority. So I haven't grown up, in, uh, I haven't grown up within a context where being black means you're part of a, an ethnic minority. I grew up in Nigeria. My ethnic group is Yoruba. I speak English as a second language. And my ethnic group for where I lived, which was Lagos, was the predominant, that was the majority ethnic group. Everybody there looked like me, sounded like me, and yet we still had all the same problems which we have here in the West about different groups having different socioeconomic outcomes. We had the same problems about people treating other people, not because they looked different or sounded different, but they came from a different sort of family or they had a different religion. So a lot of the issues that I think we make racial issues are not racial as such. They're just they're issues of difference that will occur in every society. And human beings do this. It doesn't matter how similar we are. We will find the difference. And I grew up in a middle-class family. My mother's a professor, my, my father's a doctor. But I was very, um, we, we were poor, certainly by Western standards, because being middle-class in Africa doesn't really mean anything. And moving here at age 16, for me, was a conscious decision. So I chose to be here. I wanted to be here, and I didn't mind that I'd be making myself a minority. And I think that this is probably the least racist country in the, in the world. And I think that there is a fundamental problem in terms of being able to satisfy all people 
of, um, all, well, people of color, I'll, I'll use that phrase. And that is because for people like um, Diane, their view is that they want people to see race, that saying you don't see race is a way of hiding away from it. But I don't want that. I don't want people to see my race every single time that they talk to me. And this is, you cannot satisfy both, both sides of this debate. So in, there are some people at work who feel that their racial identity should come to the forefront when we're looking at promotions. What has this person had to deal with to get here? And that, therefore, things like quotas, for example, should be used to help them to, to ensure that we're, we're equal. I don't like that. And so, for instance, the Labour Party has all black, all women shortlist. There's a by-election in Lewisham where they've done that to select a candidate. I had to beat all the barristers, the super posh, you know, privileged, white, middle-class men that everyone says have taken, have taken everything. I had to beat them to get to where I am. So I don't feel like, um, I, don't feel like I, I, didn't earn, I didn't earn this position. And there's no way you can satisfy the two sides. You have to pick one. And that is why I think that you can't have the post-racial society because it means different things to different people and you can't satisfy everyone else. Every time we move forward, we dismiss the progress and we make it seem like like things are worse than they've ever been. Things are better than they have ever been. And I'm really positive about that. I don't think we are in a post-racial society yet. I'm not sure we can ever get there, but I think we are almost as close as we'll ever be to, to that. And, and that's something to be happy about. Kemi, thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Plenty there to chew on. We'll come back into a full debate in just a couple of minutes. Richard, do, uh, do take us on. So uh, I'm going to start with the, the question that you asked us to address first is this, what should we be dreaming about? Should we be dreaming about a kind of post-racial society? Uh, I'm British by birth, moved to the US in 2012, uh, American wife, um, kids who are both, uh, have both passports. And, and I sort of shared this kind of moment with, uh, with Obama, but, um, and, uh, this, and this kind of white lash we've seen uh, as a result of it. And Pre President Obama himself has written along the following lines that, in some ways, he feels as if it was inevitable someone who looked like him would become president, but that there would also be inevitably be a reaction to that. And he's kind of hinted himself that he sort of he worries that he came a little bit too early, weirdly. Uh, in other words, th that he didn't think society had advanced to a point where his where his election wouldn't have these potential um, backlash consequences. And my real fear about this actually is that um, as I've become well, one of the things that's happened to me is as I've moved to the U.S. is I've become whiter. All right, so I was white, obviously. Um, here, <laughs> but I'm much whiter in America. And what's happened, unfortunately, I think, with the election of Barack Obama um, is that it's, uh, and indeed with some of these other kind of big symbolic wins, is that it's allowed a lot of white Americans to convince themselves that actually they're now the ones that need extra help. So the, so the polling among Republican, uh, white Republicans in the US, actually you find majorities now saying that white Americans are discriminated against more than black Americans are. And when you ask them why in qualitative follow-up studies, it's like, well, we've had a black president. Never mind the fact that 50% of the kids who are born into poverty who are black in the US stay poor throughout their adult lives. Never mind all the statistics we can kind of give you. And so in a way, it's had this sort of really, uh, I think, unfortunate byproduct politically, which has been has allowed people to take those exceptions and to imagine that they've become the rule. I don't think we should dream of a post-racial society, but I think we should dream of and work for a post-racist society. So ha and how would that work in practice? I think the way it would work in practice is that actually pe we should all be free to form our own identities in ways that include our race, ethnicity, religion, gender, e etc. But that it shouldn't be the primary way we identify each other. 
And you, you might hope it doesn't even become the primary way we identify ourselves, right? That it's not the first thing. You're not a black MP, for example, right? Um, and you might not want to identify yourself. No, you might strongly identify with your heritage, um, with African heritage, or in my case, Welsh heritage, or whatever. And that's fine. And that's going to, I think it's always going to be there. We can't dissolve race. But we do want a society where it's, not the where it's not a primary and instinctive and automatic way we identify each other because then you have real problems. I do think we do want to move to a uh, society where that's not so strongly the case, where our neighbourhoods aren't so segregated, where it isn't a primary identification. But we're a long way from that now, and especially in the US, for black Americans. Um, and, you ha and I think we might be having a different debate now if we were saying beyond Asian and white. Uh, even in the UK context, whatever, but between black and white. Um, and so you have to be quite specific about how we're thinking about race. So the experience for black Americans, and this is a black American friend who used this phrase to me, she said, you've got to remember there's a big difference between those of us who were brought here on boats and chains and those who came on airplanes more recently. Okay. The new African Americans whose kids are doing pretty well and are, doing, uh, are actually doing quite well. So it's quite specific uh, anti-black racism and even more specifically it's kind of anti-descendants of slaves black racism and that plays out very differently for men and women and so on. So actually I think we have to have quite a nuanced debate about the way different races are working now. Some evidence that actually being Asian in America predicts more success and that people are actually attaching model minority stereotypes to Asians which actually help them. <laughs> uh, so we, I'm just saying that if we'd have a different debate and we need to be okay about that and saying that, that it's it's very, very different being poor and black in America than being poor and white, and that the election of Barack Obama may have actually, unfortunately, slowed our progress towards a post-racist society, if not a post-racial one. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to IAI.TV for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. Tremendous amount there to take in from Richard as well. Thank you for that. And I'm really glad right at the end there, actually, Richard, it's a great stepping off point for the next part of this discussion that you brought up the question of different races. Because, of course, a lot of what we've been talking about, and rightly so, is about the African-American community, if we're talking about the United States, and the Afro-Caribbean black community in the UK. To set out some of our terms, I want to just turn back to our column, uh, columnists, uh, probably our columnists too, but panellists, and interrogate a little bit, bit more on some of the nuances of those questions. And Kim, I wonder if I might turn to you first, because of course you sit in the middle of these debates in the United States. Clearly the African-American experience is and must be at the centre of those debates, but where do the other ethnic minorities fit in? Is it a story of everything is happy-clappy if you're East Asian-American, South Asian-American, uh, from other sorts of ethnic minority backgrounds, but not white and not African-American? Or is there a more nuanced discourse that can be brought out of that? Where does that come in? Well, certainly there's a more nuanced um, discourse, partly because the histories are quite different. I think the distinction that we just heard between those who were brought over by boat and those who came by airplane um, is partly um, a temporal difference. It's partly a difference about how one's labor has been integrated or not. 
um, in into society. It's a it's been a question of um, whether the white American identity is dependent upon the other or whether you are another other where white American identity doesn't necessarily rely on that. So I think that as you were pointing out, if, if the if the first non-white president were, for example, East Asian, I don't think that we would have quite the backlash. I think there would still be backlash. Uh, but the idea of if black is on top, then white must be on bottom is is directly tied to the way that blackness is defined as the absence of whiteness, which is not the exact same way. Um, even if you look at um, the, the census, if you look at the different ways that Latino identity is checked, the inference is Latino non-black. So people recognize that ethnicity and race are actually different things when it comes to some ethnic groups. So yes, there is a historical difference. Now, um, does that mean that white supremacy doesn't play out in their lives? Absolutely not. Um, so there, there are different technologies about what it means to maintain a system of white supremacy and different things happen to different groups. But at the top is still culturally and politically whiteness and other groups are distributed across the hierarchy, particularly in different spaces. Okay, but let me insert one particular grouping in that. You talked about people who come on airplanes. What about the people who come to the US on airplanes but then are stopped at the airport because they have skins of a certain Middle Eastern, South Asian background and are associated now with a discourse that they must be terrorists, they must be people there to subvert the US. The latest immigration restrictions under the current president of the United States mostly have to do with people from that background, not as such from the African-American Well, I would background. add that also from Latin, Latin America. So let, let's be clear, xenophobia in the United States applies to non-white immigration, it doesn't apply basically to people coming from Canada. It doesn't apply to people who are seen as European. That is definitely true. But what the, the, the point is that, as I said before, there are, there are white supremacy plays out differently. Just because the experience may not be exactly the same as African-Americans doesn't mean that it is racism light or doesn't mean that um, consequently what we have talked about is the continuing salience of race no longer plays a role. Of course it does. What we have to be concerned about is the, the way that different racial histories get used to trump others. So for example, um, you point out that at the border right now, xenophobia is playing out particularly, you know, first of all, we've got some countries that you just can't come from. Um, second of all, we got religions that are seen as being suspect. All this is true when we're talking about at the border. When we talk inside the country, many times the very same groups that might be subject to exclusion at the border get promoted in model minority terms when the conversation happens to deal with employment, um, access, to, um, access to housing. The argument is, well, these groups were not welcome when they first got here and look at where they are now. So that gets used to trump the experience of anti-black racism in the same way that one might say, well, anti-black 
black racism might be, get used to trump the problem that's happening at the border. The challenge is to have a conversation about race and racism that is sophisticated enough to deal with the fact that white supremacy is very sophisticated. It can distinguish different groups and it can exclude them in different ways. It still maintains itself as the primary desired category to be, and it aggregates power in a way that allows it to produce these different outcomes for various groups. That, that's the challenge. It's not to say, you know, there's one story of, of racism. That's silly. Nobody says that there's one story. But the story is that white supremacy actually plays out across all these different moments. Kemi, but I turn that to, to you. You obviously have uh, grown up and become a professional in the UK. So obviously you know plenty, I'm sure, about the American experience. But Britain is a different country with its own history of race. At the moment, Windrush is really the story that is probably shaping ideas of how the state and why the society has dealt with questions of race. Do you think that that story tells us that is not something that is not the same, but is cognate with the kind of thing that Kim is putting forward? The idea that there is a whole discourse about the way in which a predominantly white state and society deal with people who don't fit into that category, even by unconscious assumption. Um, no, I, 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 in fact, I don't think that's what Windrush t tells us at all. Racial politics in the US is completely different from anything else anywhere, anywhere else in the world. Let's talk about Windrush, for example. For me, Windrush is actually a, an excellent example of how non-racist this country is, simply because this was something that the UK population as a whole found intolerable. If, for example, this was a story that was brushed under the carpets and um, it was just something that people talked about in the corners of a few papers, I would have said that, yes, this is, not a, this is a society that doesn't care. We lost a home secretary because of this. She was sacked. We had an entire government that didn't talk about anything else because people in this country were not happy. It wasn't just a few people, uh, you know, from the Windrush generation discussing this. It wasn't just a few black people. The whole country said that this was something that had, was not meant to target these people and what had happened was not right. For me, that is a positive thing. I mean, I had letters from people. It, my, my constituency is one of the whitest in the country. I represent a very, very white area, and people there cared. They wanted to talk about it. So I think the story of Windrush, for me, is, is interpreted in a completely different way. Could I just one, one phrase you used there? You said was not meant to, and I think even you know, the, the vastest conspiracy theorists are not arguing that someone was sitting in the Home Office sort of plotting to do this, but the sense of that wider structure didn't understand that there was a whole category of thousands and thousands of people whose histories and background would be different and get caught up. Yes. So that, that came from... Uh, you know, we call it a compliant environment now, but hostile environment for illegal immigration is something that there's been a greater push for, not just in the UK, but all over Europe. This is a European thing. So when Kim talks about, this is also a European thing, when Kim talks about what's happening at the border between, um, you know, say, for instance, Mexico and the US, we're seeing this even between European countries where um, some, the further east you go, they don't want the Romanians and Bulgarians, who again, you know, are white to... To, um, to come in because they feel that they rep their, their stereotypes about those, those countries, for example. It is a lot more complex. And where I would challenge the language around um, white supremacy, for instance, I would challenge it because the group of people who suffer the most in the UK are not blacks or Asians. It's white working class boys. It's very much a class issue. If you are a middle class black or Asian person, you are not going to suffer in the same way that 
if you are black, if you're black working class, it is class. And we don't want to talk about class. You know, Diane says we don't want to talk about race. We talk about race constantly. What she says is, what well, I think what she really means is, I can't talk about race without my views being challenged. We've been talking about race nonstop for can years. Can I just we take have to been. Richard for a minute because you've analysed class and race as intersecting factors in the US and the UK. What would your, be take, your take be about the difference and the similarity between these two societies in terms of the way that class and race operate? Well, uh, the US class system is, uh, to some extent, founded on racism. And that's true in the way people identify themselves as well. So there's a very big difference in, so if you hold income constant, black Americans are much less likely to describe themselves as middle class or working class, for example. Actually, the way class is used in the US is, is, is in a racially exclusionary way. It's like class is a way you, de you, determine, you de de uh, determine who you are within the white population. So there's baby pieces of different classes and then there's black Americans, <laughs> uh, basically. Um, and, and that people self-identify in that way too. Plus, in the history of the US, one of the reasons why you didn't, I think, get the same sort of working class politics that developed in Europe was because white Americans, however poor, were always able to be persuaded that they were still part of a, a superior group because at least they weren't black. The division uh, and the relationship between class and race is right there in the DNA of U the US, that's why the politics is different. Th it's not so true in the UK, and actually the statistics bear that out. So actually the kind of upward mobility rates for for black Americans are really low by comparison to all other Americans. So there's something specific to the black experience in the US. It is much less true in the UK. We actually looked at this when I was in government, when we were doing social mobility work, looked for race gaps, and actually they're nothing like as great. It's not that there aren't race gaps here, but the upward mobility rates and the life chances of, of uh, black Britons or Asian Britons uh, are not the same as whites, but they are pretty close when you control for lots of the other factors that are going to influence them, and the US is a completely different world. So this is where I kind of slightly agree that what what we don't want to do um, is lose the sort of sense that the UK has some good stories to tell about race too, right? It doesn't mean we couldn't keep challenging ourselves, but you look at the segregation uh, of gay cities by comparison to US, no comparison. You look at the upward mobility rates, absolutely no comparison. And so I, I think we should, we should be very careful in this conversation not to fall into the trap of just assuming that because race and racism are still problems, that the UK doesn't have a lot to feel good about as, as well as to worry about. And I, d and I actually do think that's a bit of a danger with this kind of debate. And having seen it from both sides now, I'd really urge anyone in Britain to say, don't look away from British racism, but also recognise that progress has been made. And I think it's really important that, as we will do, that we discuss these as two separate countries with their own history as well as some shared issues. Kim, just something to throw to you. You talked in your in opening comments about the meaning of Barack Obama. You pointed out, amongst other things, that at that point robbed the US Senate of its only African-American Senate member. Today, there are a very small number of African-Americans in the Senate. One of them is a man called Tim Scott from South Carolina, and he's a Republican. We've talked a lot over the years about the meaning of Barack Obama. What is the meaning of Tim Scott? I think we can see the meaning of, of black conservatives. Black conservatives have a very short line. Um, they are um, enormously, um, I, I think, influential in being able to voice certain dimensions of the society that masses of other black people uh, are contesting. It, I think a more important example of that is Clarence Thomas. He is able to determine the rules in society that determine things like elections. The point that I want to make is this. There is a contradiction um, in people like Clarence Thomas uh, rising to the top on an argument of non-racialism that then go on to do 
precisely racial work and do so in racial terms. So Clarence Thomas, for those who you might not know, he was a person who was appointed the head of the EEOC, appointed the head of uh, the discrimination uh, division. He was given quote unquote black jobs as a person who said that he wasn't interested in racial issues. So why would that happen? Based on that experience, he becomes you know, the next uh, Supreme Court justice. And in that role, voices the arguments for rolling back civil rights protections and is able to do so partly because of who he is, partly because no one is going to say a black person saying that is saying racist things, partly because people's understanding of racism is so narrow. It's, it's basically an idea that suggests you're saying the things that you're saying because you hate a particular group of people or because you're prejudiced. That's such a small dimension of what racial power is about that it's almost irrelevant. The question is, do you support and sustain institutions and rules and regulations and ways of doing the work that work gets done in a way that predictably, continuously, into the future will have this disparate, disparate impact on people of color. That's what Clarence Thomas is able to do. So you ask me, what's the meaning of Scott? What's the meaning of any of, any of the folks who do that? It's very meaningful and useful in a project to shore up uh, a very questionable, you know, unequal okay. situation. And we'll discuss that, that with the audience that's what in, the in just a, a moment. But Kemi, let me talk. Just, just briefly turn, turn to you. You spoke in your opening comments extremely impressively about the way in which you had gone through the conservative selection process on merit, finding your way there. But isn't there a wider context in which it is much more useful these days for a conservative party, which wishes rightly to be seen as modern and open, to have a black and indeed female candidate representing Saffron Walden than someone like your distinguished predecessor, Rab Butler, who I may have mentioned once or twice, you know, a white traditional middle-class background, male, and so forth. That is objectively for the party useful in changing their image. It's, it's not purely something individualistic to you. Well, I think that would be fair to say if I was selected in a situation where the party said, this is what we're looking for, so can you pick that? There was a vacancy, and it's not picked by the higher echelons of the party. It's a local party. It was people in Saffron Walden who had never met me before. And I also had an, a disadvantage, a strong disadvantage, not because I was black or female, but because I didn't come from the area. People tend to go for, for local candidates. And they decided that they wanted me, not because I was going to tell a story about them, but because I shared, I shared their values. I think it is important that a party looks like the country that it represents, but that isn't just on a racial, that's not just on a racial level, it's also regional, it's background, where you grew up, you know, what sort of, and again, and again, the class issue. And what really worries me is that when people say that they want the parties or politicians to look like the country, what they really mean is that it should look like London. And that's something completely, that's something completely different. That variation in terms of that diversity um, is not just what you can see, it's diversity of thought as well, being able to think different things and being able to talk about those things without people, um, without people attacking you. And this is, it's a very interesting thing for me because my job now as a vice chairman for candidates is actually to pick the next generation of, um, of conservative MPs. And I, the person doing that is a black woman. I doubt, but when I'm, when I'm picking, I'm not going to be looking for, well, how many, how many black people do we have? I'm going to be looking for who are the very best people who can communicate these values and... Kemi, thank you for that. that. I know that there'll be plenty 
to carry on. And we're having the last word on this platform, but not for this debate. Please thank our guests. We hope you enjoyed this podcast brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. Check out IAI TV for more podcasts, videos and debates. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.